Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Oh, oh. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This is the best of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. We've got our guy, John Morosi. He's an expert in both the NHL and also in Major League Baseball. And I want to start on the NHL side with you, John. First, thanks for getting up early with us. Um, Second, now that all four of the series are set, I believe you had picked the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs to play the Nashville Predators. The Maple Leafs ended up giving the Bruins quite a run in Game 7, but they're now out. What would you say as you look at the final eight teams, what are your expectations now? Oof. Well, I, I've got to stay with Nashville in the West, although th- that series against Winnipeg, I think of the remaining four series, Clay, that Winnipeg-Nashville series is going to be, I believe, the best of all the semifinals uh, in, in terms of the conference series, and, and that, that may even be the best two teams left. I, I, just, I am so impressed by the way Winnipeg has played, and I think Nashville really after letting Colorado hang around longer than probably a lot of us thought they were going to, really put together a good game six that I think was, was an emphatic way to end that series. So uh, I, I think for me it's it's about the, the Predators added forward depth, but the same story for Winnipeg. They, they added Stastny this year. Wheeler has been there obviously for a long time. Shifley, they're really strong down the middle. So I, I think Winnipeg. I think it's going to be the best series left. Uh, I think in, in certainly in this round, Winnipeg and, and Nashville. And probably have to say, coming out of the East, um, you know, I, I I would love to say Boston because I saw their their amount of firepower there last night offensively. But Rask was shaky, and so I'm I'm a little bit wary uh, there. But I I, I I I'll go with I'll say Boston since since they knocked off the team that. Uh, 
that I had picked, but I'm a little nervous about the goaltending after last night. What's going on with the goaltending in the NHL playoffs in general? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of goals being scored in these playoffs, maybe a lot more than people would have anticipated. You could have made a lot of money just taking the over just about throughout the first round in the NHL. Uh, is that something that's going to change as we move into the uh, upper rounds? Is somebody's goalie going to get hot? Or is this just, a, this just a function of there being a lot more talent offensively than there is in the goal right now? It's a great question, Clay. I, I think that that really strikes it the way the game is played now. And, and there's been so much conversation during the course of the year uh, in the NHL about goaltender interference. What is, what is it? Uh, it's been an ongoing question, and I, I think some of the uncertainty has, has contributed to uh, maybe tentativeness at different times or uh, in the net actually for goaltenders. So I think that, that generally has been a storyline of this season. But I, I think it's probably just a firepower. I think you're seeing Pittsburgh has always been able to, to, to put crooked numbers up on, on, on teams from a standpoint of just big-time goal totals. And Washington, we know what, when they really get clicking, uh, they've got so much offensive depth. So I think it's probably just that the, the teams that are – that are strong and, and their overall forward depth and, and, and the way the game has changed. And also, I think, I'll, I'll say this as well, Clay, we have seen in recent years teams that have won the Cup, and obviously in, in the last few years it's been Pittsburgh, but uh, we've seen the Kings have a really good decade in general, um, and, and they've all got defensemen that really jump up in the play. And I think that is Nashville, of course, as you know, is, is, is known for that part of their brand as well. So I, I think when you're seeing more and more offensive-minded defensemen, and, and uh, GMs are, are looking around the game saying, you know what, we need to have that type of player to, to really make our offense go and, and obviously add to our defense. Uh, it's, I think it's really changing the roster construction, which I think has had a real effect on, uh, on the way we're seeing offensive production that go around the game. What's going on? Uh, let's go to baseball now. A lot of people are not paying attention. We're 23 games into the season. For people out there who've been focused, and I put myself in this camp, you're paying a lot of attention to the NBA playoffs. You're paying a lot of attention to the NHL. The draft is today. For people out there who are sitting around like not really aware of what's going in base- on, on in baseball, what kind of storyline of the first three weeks of the season effectively or four weeks of the season would you say that people should have been paying attention to that they may have missed? Well, here's one. In the National League, I think there's a lot of questioning among the, the sort of the executives and observers about how much or how little they ought to read into the slow starts by two teams that are expected to be uh, potential World Series teams this year, the Dodgers and the Nationals. The Dodgers are 11-12. and 12, The Nationals are 11-14. and 14. Uh, And we know, of course, Clayton Kershaw is in the final year of his contract before he can opt out. Harper's in the final year of his contract with the Nationals. So you've got a lot of urgency for both teams, and neither team is off to a very good start. Now, the Dodgers, uh, they've actually lost two straight games. It, it's, it's, they've been a really confusing team offensively. Uh, and the Nationals, uh, I think, oddly, they have struggled offensively as well. And, and even pitching-wise, if it's not been Scherzer or Strasburg on the mound, uh, they've lost a lot of games and their bullpen has let them down. So I think on, on sort of the, the negative side, one of the questions is how long is that going to last? Uh, I think on the positive side, certainly Otani remains a, 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 a phenomenon. I mean, he, he has not pitched quite as great or as dominantly the last two times out, but he remains a, a real megawatt star. And we're now also coming to the time as well, Clay, when, when the top prospects are coming up for the minor leagues uh, who are now clear of that uh, threshold where, where they can affect the teams effectively get that additional year of control if you wait until – the first uh, three weeks of the season are done, and so we're seeing Ronald Acuna come up from the minor leagues, and, and he uh, 
helped the Braves win last night as they improved to a very surprising 13-10 start. How bad are the Cincinnati Reds? I mean, I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan. They are 5-19 and 19 right now. It's never a good sign when it's April and you're already 11 games back uh, in your, in your uh, division. But are they potentially one of the worst teams we've ever seen in the history of Major League Baseball? Or is the pace that they're on right now impossible to sustain in its awfulness? Well, uh, they're 5-19, and 19, as you point out. Uh, worst record uh, in the league. And they just fired their manager last week, and there's still some whispers about it. If at some point in time, Barry Larkin may uh, take over the reins of that club. So I think stay tuned there as an off-season storyline, if anything, uh, for legendary uh, Cincinnati Reds. But I, they're a team, Clay, that, that their pitching is really young. And they had a tough injury with Eugenio Suarez, one of their key guys, early in the season. And they're in a pretty good division. I, I look at the Brewers and the Cubs and the Cardinals as all being playoff contenders. The Pirates uh, are off to a 13-11 and 11 start, which is better than expected, even though they've somewhat leveled off in the last 10, 10 days. But So you've basically got, in my judgment, three legitimate playoff contenders and one team that has played better than expected. And when that's all happening in your division, you're probably losing a lot of games to those teams, and that's exactly what's happened. So uh, I don't see the Brewers or the Cardinals or the Cubs going away as contenders anytime soon. So if, if, if the Reds are not going to really be able to collectively get up off the canvas, uh, th- these are some teams that are going to be able to really, uh, I think, uh, earn a lot of victories against the Reds based on just the, the disparity in talent. So uh, unless the Reds collectively uh, figure out a different way forward, they're going to have a lot of tough nights in this division. And I also think that even in the league, you're seeing teams like, the Braves are better than expected. The Mets are better than expected. The Diamondbacks have shown that they've got some staying power relative to how they played last year, and they've got the best record in the league right now. So in general, the National League is up, and and I think that the Reds, uh, it would not surprise me if their winning percentage uh, starts in, in the 200s and not the 300s this year. Yeah, that's ugly. All right, I want to go back to the NHL really quickly with you here now that we're into the second round. Does the NHL need to look at how they seed? You mentioned that Nashville Predators and Winnipeg may be uh, the two best teams. Certainly, it was the two best teams from a uh, points perspective, uh, from you know the guys who ended up with the most uh, points during the course of the season. They're now playing in the second round. Why not just go in and say, we're going to seed one to eight, or even, and I've been making this argument for the NBA too, I would like to see just do away with conferences and divisions and everything else and just go 1-16 to 16 so that if you're going to play 82 regular season games, this is my argument out there for people who haven't heard it, you're going to play 82 regular season games in both the NBA and the NHL to only eliminate 14 teams, right? Over half of the league makes the playoffs. To me, you should reward the teams that are the best and punish the teams that are the worst. So one should play 16, two should play 15, and you should go all the way to the Stanley Cup final. I know there are lots of upsets and whatnot, but you should try to endeavor to ensure that you end up with the two best teams. Now, I understand historically the goal was let's have an East Coast team play against a West Coast team, but a lot of these divisions are messed up anyway in terms of like the Nashville Predators are in the West, even though they're nowhere near the West. You got teams like the Houston Rockets, for instance, in the NBA that are in the West, even though really, let's be honest, I don't think most people think of Houston as a Western city. And so why not just set it up so by the time you get to the postseason, you play the best against the worst until you get to the finals where you get the two best teams. Am I crazy or does that make a lot of sense? Uh, it's, it's, it's a very fair point, Clay. I, I, would, I would suggest 
two things that, that run counter to that. Number one, especially in hockey and especially in the Western Conference, you can travel an awful lot. Uh, and, and, there, and there's been a lot of uh, a lot of belief. If you talk to executives and players who have done it, that if you're that if you're playing for back in the day, of course, if, if you're playing for the Red Wings when, the, when they were in the West, or now let's say Nashville, and if and if they were playing on the West Coast in every single round, by the end of it, if if they got to the cu- the Cup final, they they may be fatigued from all of those cross country flights. I, I know it doesn't sound like to. To, uh, to sort of all of us that aren't pro athletes, that, that it should matter that much, but it does. If you talk to those guys, I mean, the, the travel is hard, and and I think that so if you've got a one one versus sixteen, two versus fifteen, you may be inconveniencing that team from a standpoint of cross country travel to the point that you actually hurt their chances of, of winning the cup in any given year. I, I would also say that for for hockey, given its its regional nature in some respects. Um, where the rivalries are still mean a lot on a regional basis as opposed to a, a national basis. That, for example, you had Pittsburgh and Philadelphia playing. Anytime those two teams play in the playoffs, it's a great thing for the NHL. You had Boston play Toronto, two original six teams, rivals for more than a hundred years. That's that's a series that has to play, that, that that is great to be played. So I think that, uh, and also too, you can sort of cultivate new emerging rivals. I, I think Nashville and Winnipeg is going to be great rivalry and that central division for a long time because they're both really good teams. You're cultivating that. You're cultivating Vegas playing in their region against the Kings, who are probably regionally a, a, a team where you'd have a lot of fans that maybe go between both cities. Uh, it's just I, I think the regional nature of it still makes sense, even though I, I think there's a lot of validity to what you say, Clay. I think that for now it, it makes sense to keep the, the playoffs as they are, even though we're seeing some cases – Whereas it was true for Nashville last year, you're the, the the eighth seed in your conference. You get in and you've got all this momentum because you had to really fight just to get into the playoffs, and boom, you knock out the Blackhawks in the first round, and then you're out of the Cup final. So it's a uh, it's a really fascinating thing. But I think as much as uh, I would love to say that there should be changes made, I think for now it's it's a nice fit with the structure they've got for the playoffs right now. Outstanding as always, my man. Have a good morning, and we will talk to you next week. Sounds great, Clay. Maybe I'll be seeing you soon in your great great city of Nashville here if they, if they make it to the conference final. We'll see. Yeah, let me know if you're here for sure. That'll be a lot of fun. That's uh, John Morosi. He joins us every single Thursday in hour two. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Let's bring in Alex Marvez. He's down in Dallas and Arlington getting ready for the draft tonight. Uh, who's going to go number one, Alex? I'm, you know, I'm between Sam Darnold and Josh Allen, I, I just, um, uh, you know, the Baker Mayfield stuff, I just don't see a quarterback like that playing in Cleveland. And, and it's so, it, I don't know, it, it's like this high-risk, high-reward type thing. And listen, I get it, Baker Mayfield, a guy who likes to have fun, a lot of confidence. But, you know, he's also, I talked to one team, and I'm going to, you know, or I talked to people connected with like the Arizona Cardinals, for example, and they were telling me, hey, look, this guy turned them off in three minutes in the interview. He's not for everyone. There is a certain arrogance when it comes to Baker Mayfield. Some may call it confidence, but he's a little guy too. I mean, he's about six foot one and, you know, not even that, you know, and, and I just think that may scare off some teams who still, even though in today's era, we see the Russell Wilsons and we see those guys who are doing well, the Drew Breeses, of course, but those are more the exception rather than the rule. I just think it's going to be Donald or Allen when all is said and done. Well, we know who's going to be the number one pick before the card is walked up to the table. Well, and if we do the, know, 
Yeah. It, yeah, if we do know, will we know like a couple of hours beforehand? Sometimes the the overall number one pick will leak through the media, and everybody will hear, "Oh, they're negotiating officially with insert player here," and they know that he's going to be the overall number one pick. When do you think we will become aware as a kind of a mass society of who the number one pick will be? I do think at some point this afternoon it may start leaking out, but let's remember a couple things here. Number one, the NFL leans on the teams not to say anything. Okay, yeah. they want to build up the suspense. They want to have this on TV. And remember too that the hands of the of the insiders are tied because of the business arrangement that the NFL has with NFL Network. If you call them media. Uh, also ESPN. I mean, you can't tip picks if you're some of these insiders because their networks do business with the league and they want, and the NFL is really trying to keep, you know, the picks under wraps until the last minute. So some insiders may know and not put it out there. You know, that, that's the other thing that, that's happened with this. You're sort of, your hands are tied because of the business relationship that your employer has with the NFL. So if it comes out, it's coming out through a third party source if you understand what I'm saying. And whether that gets out uh, through John Dorsey, anyone in the Browns organization leaking that information, or even the player's agent themselves, if they're told, hey, you're going to be our guy, you know, that's it. But will it get out there at 50-50 on that just because of the rules that I just described? Number two overall. Okay, we're not sure you think it's either going to be Josh Allen or Sam Darnold will be your guess at number one overall still. What happens at two? What are the Giants going to do? Are they going to take Saquon Barkley? Are they going to trade that pick? Or are potentially they in the running for a quarterback as well? Nah, I just don't see the quarterback thing. I really think that they're that, – listen, because, you know, what you're doing is then at that point you're, you're sort of putting Eli Manning in a really tough spot. And my feeling is if they're ready to move on from Eli, they would have put him on the trading block earlier to a team that had a quarterback interest. Talk to Eli. He has a no-trade clause. I get that. But would Eli want to remain with the Giants knowing that as soon as another quarterback is taken, the clock is ticking on him? And that's a, just a really un, you know difficult circumstance to have to play under. We saw it last year with Alex Smith in Kansas City. Alex handled it well. But, you know, there was always that sort of Damocles hanging over his head as he did all of his work. And I'm not sure if Peyton Manning wants to go through that. So I, I'm, as, as this all unfolds, I'm really starting to think Barkley with the Giants. I will say this, that one of the things that, that is interesting for the Giants and, and what they've tried to use as a little bit of a measuring stick is, well, he's not Lawrence Taylor. Because every defensive end or, you know, pass rusher, outside linebacker is compared to Lawrence Taylor. But what they have to also understand, too, in that same sentence from what I'm told, is like, okay, if we get a guy who gets us 10 sacks a year and may not be the, a, a Pro Bowl caliber player every year, but is that consistent? Is that worth going for a number two or do we try to hit the home run with Saquon Barkley? And that's what's going to be so interesting about that second overall pick. All right, three, Josh Rosen to the Jets. Do you think it happens? Uh, it, that's that's potential. I mean, I see. I just don't know about Baker Mayfield because with with Baker, again, you're talking about a guy who Clay is going to get baited into media feuds. He's going to do you know off the court. You're talking about someone who actually likes to live their life, and I think you put that in New York City, and and that's where things can really get amplified. How you're living that type of lifestyle. I think they went through that with Mark Sanchez before, and I'm not sure if they're so sure they've they've learned their lesson. But I, I got to think that it's going to be quarterback, and this is where potentially the one who isn't Josh Allen. Or Sam Darnold goes. Not sure if it's going to be Josh Allen. There is a concussion history. And for some reason, people don't like the fact that the young man speaks his mind. I think, in fact, he'd be great jostling with the New York media in his, in his case uh, because of the fact that he doesn't have an off-field lifestyle that is going to draw a lot of attention. So all that being said, it'll be the Darnold or Allen guy uh, who wasn't picked who ends up there. There's an article in the New York Daily News by an idiot writer who said if Lamar Jackson was white, he'd be the number one overall pick. Your thoughts? 
Um, that is just one terrible, terrible column. I will tell you that. And, and you listen, one of the problems that, that I've heard from Lamar Jackson, look, I talked to him yesterday, and, and the, the thing about him is that he's frustrated that there's a narrative out there that first NFL teams couldn't reach him, uh, you know, be during the draft process. His because his mom is representing him, right? Right. And what's happening with him is he says, look, my phone rings from agents all day. And that's the problem. He doesn't want to pick up a number unless he recognizes it. He goes, he waits for the phone, it finishes, someone leaves a voicemail. If it's a team, he'll call them right back. I mean, that's how he's done that. But that'll say, you know, that's obviously the agent business because people are trying to get in to get a piece of what it is that he's going to be getting under his rookie contract. And he said there was a, you know, a story also by Mike Mayock that says he blew a team off uh, for a workout instead. And the way he said it is, no, I did my workout at Louisville. And then a team tried to crash into a private workout he had with the Chargers. And so that's how that went. Uh, there's L- Lamar Jackson, look, compared to these other guys. Unless, listen, Mon- I'm not saying he's not going to end up being better. We don't, we don't know any of that. But what NFL teams are traditionally looking for is that pocket quarterback that runs a pro-style offense. And while Lamar did that in, in college, I think that there's the feeling that some people can do it better than him at the next level. Lamar, too, one of the things that teams are concerned about, believe it or not, is how he speaks and whether he can effectively communicate plays in the huddle with long verbiage. Because Lamar, you know, he, honestly, he, he's not the clearest guy when you hear him speak. But, you know, that's something to me, again, our team's nitpicking. Does this stuff come out just because, you know, you're, you're trying to find a flaw in a kid? I don't know. But definitely uh, New York Daily News, please. It's, it's a ridiculous piece. Um, and, and what's interesting about it, too, I think, on Lamar Jackson's front is I think nobody's talking about this to a large extent. I think Bobby Petrino factors in in a big way here. You know Bobby Petrino, even though he left the Falcons the way he did. People look at Bobby Petrino and say, that guy knows how to get the most out of every quarterback he's ever had, right? And Lamar Jackson may be the best quarterback that Bobby Petrino has ever had, but I think when NFL guys watch the film, and I'm far from an X's and O's guy, but the number of times that Bobby Petrino schemes you into a situation where your first wide receiver or your first passing option is wide open is insanely high. And I did not see Lamar Jackson watching him play, did not see him go through a lot of progressions before he would just take off and run. Either his first option is there, maybe sometimes he gets to his second, and then he just takes off. And when I saw him play against the best, most talented defenses in college football, typically in the SEC, I saw him not be able to handle that. And if he can't do it against the SEC... I think there's a big difference between what he'd be capable of in uh, college and the NFL, where those windows shorten, where the guys are so much faster. And here's the other thing on Lamar. He's not very physically big, right? Like He's not like he's a big guy who, like, Cam Newton runs the football a decent amount early in his career with Carolina. Cam ran it a lot in college, too. Same thing with Tebow. Those guys are monsters, right? When Tim Tebow runs over a linebacker, or, or Cam Newton does, the linebacker a lot of times bears the brunt of that pain because those guys were such big, physical bowling balls of players. Lamar Jackson's build is pretty slight, and so I legitimately question whether he can consistently take hits in the NFL if he's scrambling outside the pocket. Absolutely, and then the other, you know, another thing that goes with that is how are you structuring your offense? Right, like if you're the Arizona Cardinals, and this is a team that does have a quarterback need, you draft Lamar Jackson, okay, great. You're putting him in the same offense, the same Bradford and Mike Lennon, two guys who are just, you know, statues. I mean, you're going to have him in that type of offense. Are you putting in a separate offense for Lamar Jackson? What is it that you're going to do to take advantage of his, his skills? I mean, listen, you see the Houston Texans this offseason completely retooling their offense because they realize what they have in Deshaun Watson and to incorporate those things. That's why are we going to see the Jets 
we do their offense. I mean, you know, what we don't know what Buffalo's offense is, quite honestly, under Brian Dayball. Maybe he has an idea about how to get the best out of him if, if he goes there at number 12. But there are just certain teams that are going to say, okay, what is it that, that offensively, does he fit into what we want to do, types of things we run, and are we going to be able to structure our skill set around that type of thing with the quarterback? So it's like a good point by you. All right, Adam Schefter just tweeted, and I don't know, maybe the Browns are playing this game smartly. I want to get your read on this. Adam Schefter just tweeted, mounting belief from head coaches and GMs around the NFL that Cleveland is going to take Baker Mayfield at number one overall. Peter Schrager, who's on Good Morning Football, a good buddy of mine, also tweeted earlier he feels like it's going to be Baker Mayfield. Cleveland might well be putting out that story right now through the media. Is that an effort to get somebody to trade up to number four with them? Like, what is their game plan here? Or do you think they could really be taking Baker Mayfield? Or I know we started off with this question, but if, if you were like, it's like three-dimensional chess now trying to figure out what's going on. There's no reason for Cleveland to leak this out if it's not true unless they want some, they know somebody badly wants Baker Mayfield and they're trying to bait them into a trade. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, and also, too, like Adam says, and this is how a lot of reporters put together mock drafts or share information. It's not necessarily even coming from the team itself. It's like what Adam says. Right. Head coaches and general managers around the league who are trying to, you know, project in a mock draft or, you know, so that, you know, a little real-life mock draft so they can be prepared to pick. This is what they're hearing, whether it's communique with, you know, with an agent, whether it's a team that all of a sudden starts calling all these people that they know, uh, you know, high school coaches, more homework being done toward Baker Mayfield as you just try to finalize, okay, is there anything in this guy's background that should concern us as we move ahead? By the way, wouldn't it be amazing if teams did such diligence in actual free agency four years later <laughs> at what they were getting rather than just bring someone in, sign them, and pay them even more money uh, under the salary cap to come in as free agents? But again, a more diligence being done. So when you see it from Adam, that's really a technique that reporters use to try to ferret out the information. It's not so much coming from the team itself, but you call a GM and you say, who do you think they're going to pick? And that's where that's the type of thing that Adam's doing here. It's good reporting, and it gives us something to talk about. You know, what's fascinating to me also about the NFL draft is ESPN started off their coverage today covering uh, Josh Allen's tweets from when he was a high school kid. I don't know if you paid attention to the Dante DiVincenzo yeah. controversy and everything else. My position on this show is that if you send a tweet when you're a high schooler, it shouldn't be a story when you are an adult. Right, That's just my position in general, that we should kind of, in the same way we decided as a society, hey, if you get arrested for a crime when you're 15 or 16 and you become a better person, we'll wipe that out. We don't hold your juvenile decisions against you for the rest of your life. In your mind is going back into a 16, 17-year-old's Twitter history and pulling out tweets and turning them into major national stories, fair or foul game? No, I think it's fair because it's just it's there. It's public record. And, you know, you worry sometimes when you see the use of, of the N-word uh, in some of these tweets, and I understand where it was coming from. And, you know, these things are, are you know, again, is it a youthful indiscretion? Sure. Is it the sign of something else? Well, you don't know. And, I, and the, the thing that's amazing to me is if you realize you have something out there that may be offensive, go back and delete it. That's the whole thing, too. I mean, these things I don't. I, I, in all honesty, I've, I've said this. If there, there are a lot of kids who listen to us as they drive into school uh, in the mornings or ride in with their yeah. parents. I would encourage, and this is why, by the way, kids are smarter than us with technology in lots of ways. This is why Snapchat has become so popular, because kids can say things and do things, and then they vanish, and they don't exist forever. But either make your account a private, or just go out when you become an adult, and you go into college, and you start to be on the job search process, and wipe clean 
everything that you have done up to that point. I mean, I'm telling you kids out there, I mean, giving you advice, the thing people will do is they'll Google you. If they can find your Instagram, if they can find your Twitter, they're going to go look at it. And by and large, you probably are putting up things, no matter who you are and how good of a kid you are, Facebook too, that could make a company question whether they want to employ you or not. So my thing is just go wipe out everything that you've ever done. It's a little bit different for me and you. Like everything I've ever tweeted, I've done as a public figure. I started, you know, into the social media era for purposes of my job. But if I were a decade younger, that wouldn't be the case. I would have been, you know, 17 years old in high school tweeting, and I would have been 22 in college, and I might have said things that as an adult would be inappropriate and as a kid, weren't necessarily inappropriate. Just wipe it clean. I, I, I just start with a clean slate once you become an adult and become a public person in some way. You're right. And listen, you know, this is the type of thing now, if Josh Allen enters a locker room in the NFL, which he will, you have to answer for this sort of thing. And that's, again, just something you have to check as a team when you go back and do your background checks. You see something like this. Is it just someone being young? Is there something that, you know, you feel uh, compelled enough to be able to, to, you feel emboldened enough to drop the N-word uh, in some tweets? Well, you know what I'm saying? That's something that, is there a bigger picture issue here? Yeah, as far as like, let's, see the world? let's say, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a question. But let's say, like, the, the, again, I, I think it's so stupid that we define race racism in this country by word choice now. There's a difference for young kids between using the word that ends in A, which is what Josh Allen did, uh, and and for all we know, he's quoting rappers like uh, like Divisenzo was, and being legitimately racist. Like I, this is my thing right. in general: right. is context matters, and we lo- have lost all ability to look at context in the world today. Somebody's either awful or they're a saint, and reality is most everybody else is in the middle. All right, I want to hit you with this before we go out. Last question for you: this story out of San Francisco. Reuben Foster's girlfriend now is saying that she made it all up and he didn't do anything to her. Now, this isn't uncommon in cases of domestic violence, but it creates a huge mess for the San Francisco 49ers because who knows what's true and what's not true now. And obviously, the NFL has created this bigger mess by having the personal conduct policy, which requires all these punishments regardless of what the truth actually is before we even know what the justice system has determined. What in the world's going to happen here with this job? Uh, well, real quick on something, I just to follow up on something, Mike Freeman just tweeted from Bleacher Report, who said that some of the things I'm hearing from around the league on racist Josh Allen tweets, number one, he was a kid, give him a break. Number two, he was more than old enough to know better. And number three, black player texted me saying he thinks Allen will initially have problem in locker room. This is so, so stupid because it's all about context. I mean, again, I just think it's insane. We'll talk about it in the final segment, but that's uh, that's the story here. All right, what, what about the Ruben Foster? Listen, if you're the 49ers, I, I got to think, you know, at this point, they say if there's any proof that, that he touched her, that they're going to go in a different direction. And oftentimes, Clay, as you've seen, unfortunately, these domestic situations, someone realizes, even though they're the victim, that it's going to potentially cause other bigger problems for, for the person who was the abuser. But if, they, if this goes to the police, obviously, you know, this woman knows that Reuben Foster's time in the NFL is likely over. If she does something like this, you have to consider that as the DA. I mean, where was all this before the draft? Where was all these claims about a video? 
where all this stuff is, you know, came out a couple weeks ago, and Ruben Foster's been having his name dragged through the mud. Now, apparently, the, the accuser says nothing happened. I mean, like you say, first, the NFL has its own brand of justice, but what do the 49ers stand for? Other thing, too, Clay, look, if they can't get better a linebacker on the draft board, if guys are off there, then maybe they deal with this in the second, third round. But I do think it's an area that they're going to have to address because I don't see Ruben Foster on the field for at least six games in 2018 if we ever indeed see him again in a 49ers Good stuff as always. Alex Marvez, enjoy the draft down in Dallas. We will talk to you next week. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now.